We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Tuesday, December 12th, 2017. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we'll speak with the founder of Hill Vets, Justin Brown. There's always a lot going on on Capitol Hill, but as we near the end of this session of Congress, their schedule is ramping up as they try to get as much done as they can. And when it comes to legislation that'll affect veterans, Justin and his team are on the front lines of making sure we're kept up to date and aware of everything that'll affect us. So Justin will be live in studio with the latest and greatest coming off of Capitol Hill. Later, Air Force veteran Brian Niswander is going to stop by to talk to us about an organization he's working with that aims to make the transition from military life to the civilian world easier and more fruitful. That organization is militarytransition.org, and Brian's going to fill us in on all the details of the work that they're doing in just a little bit. All of that and more on today's edition of The Morning Briefing, and it kicks off now as we welcome Jake, the Texas Rattlesnake Hughes, into the studio. Good morning, Jake. How are you? I'm fine, and that's the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. There you go. He was the Texas Rattlesnake, right? Yes. I, I always get confused. I was more... My era of professional wrestling was more the Jake the Snake Roberts era. I got that all the time growing up. Jake the Snake? Hey, Jake, where's your snake? If only I knew now what I knew then, I could have had something. I could have said something to him. Oh, well. Well, yeah. This is a family show. Of course. Of course, no. Uh, Jake the Snake, unfortunately, uh, addicted to crack cocaine and other things. He's clean now. Is he now? Yeah. Yeah, That's right. Isn't he like born again, I believe? There's a documentary on Netflix called The Resurrection of Jake the Snake Roberts. Really? It is fascinating. It details him. Diamond Dallas Page helped him go from... 300 pounds, on crack, almost dead, to now where he's doing conventions, he's doing shows again. It's really, really heartwarming. And Dallas Page is uh, big into yoga. That's one of the big things for him, one of the ways that he's kept healthy as he's gotten older. Because let's be honest, and and I think we can talk about this, because there are a lot of veterans, even at an advanced age, who remain fans of professional wrestling. Those guys, they don't live very long, man. Nah, nope, not really. Deadspin, which is kind of a snarky sports website that came out of the Gawker family of sites, has a uh, had, I think it's over now, but they had for a while this ghoulish segment called the Dead Wrestler of the Week, where they would talk about like various wrestlers and, and tell their stories and how they ended up dead. And boy, did they have a lot to choose from. It's kind of yep. sad, the, the things that they put their bodies through, both through wrestling and, of course, during that 80s and 90s era of Bigger is better, all just juiced out of their minds yeah, on steroids. Yeah, hopped up on steroids and all cocaine. Of them on steroids. And it, even today, it's still an issue, and I know that because as a big mixed martial arts fan, Brock Lesnar, who's a, a WWE wrestler, came over to have, of course, he was a former MMA champion, freak athlete, great collegiate wrestler, had never really played competitive football before and almost made the Minnesota Vikings team <laughs> when he tried out for him. Freak athlete, but when he came back, and fought Mark Hunt in the UFC, he tested positive for steroids. So he was back on the juice for his wrestling days, which 
I can almost understand because of what they put themselves through with a couple hundred days a year of competing, although I think Lesnar was doing less. But also interesting in the world of uh, of, of wrestling and MMA, because he's an MMA fighter now, is uh, Bobby Lashley. You know who he is? Never heard of him. Bobby Lashley is a gigantic guy. Looks like looks like an action figure, really. Like Looks like <laughs> if you were to design a human being to be able to smash through walls, Bobby Lashley would be it. He came to fame as a wrestler in the WWE. I still call it the WWE. Yeah, I do too. Dude, I'm from the city where their headquarters is. Like Vince McMahon and I, we lived in the same city for most of my life. Um, he lived in a very different part of it than right. I did, but we <laughs> yeah, both lived in the same place. Um, and so Bobby Lashley came there, and I never really knew much about him because I, I, I had stopped watching wrestling when I was a kid, part of it due to uh, going to the wrestling headquarters and finding out at a, an earlier age than some like, oh, this isn't real. This is scripted. Oh, no, it kind of ruined it for me. Came back during like 98, 99 when I roommate it with somebody in. Uh, no, no, it was later than that. It was like 2000, 2001 when I was in Virginia. Had a roommate who was big into the Stone Cold, the Rock yeah, feud. The, you know, yeah, the, the, the attitude, attitude era. era, as it became known. Um, so watched it a little bit then and then stopped again. So Bobby Lashley came after that. Bobby Lashley, it turns out, I find out when he gets into MMA and I'm like, who is this guy? Let's get his background because professional wrestlers uh, may think that they can transition into mixed martial arts without a martial arts background. Uh, if you... Have uh, any idea what happened to old CM, CM Punk, Punk? Yeah, aka Phil Brooks. That's what I like to call him. Just hey, Phil, what's up? He uh, he not thinks, to be confused with Phil Briggs. No, Phil Briggs and Phil Brooks are two different people. Um, probably equally as uh, <laughs> as good inside of an octagon, based on what I saw from the one time. That yeah, it, it was bad and fought Mickey Gall. So Bobby Lashley, I start looking into who Bobby Lashley is. Turns out Bobby Lashley is a veteran. Not only that, and I'm, I'm, I believe, I'm going to look this up, because again, this was something that I found out years ago, I believe served in the United States Army. We're going to find this out right now. There you go. Former United States Army sergeant and was like the all forces wrestling champion when he was in. So that was his background. He has a wrestling base. It's a, it's a fascinating story how a guy goes from the army and wrestling there don't know what his job was in the army, but when we look at his size, currently six foot two inches, and they list him at two hundred and forty-five pounds. There's no way <laughs> this man weighs two hundred and forty-five pounds, Jake. I'll show you if, if anybody's listening out there and wants to see. Just Google Bobby Lashley, look at the picture, and tell me there's any way that that man weighs two hundred and forty-five pounds. More like three hundred and forty-five. He is huge. Although in MMA, uh, his max weight for a heavyweight is two sixty-five, so he's probably cutting down from around three hundred. He's, he's freakishly large, but army sergeant, WWE superstar, MMA fighter, and not like a big time MMA fighter. He's in Bellator, which is the number two promotion in the world, but you know, he's, he's never fought for a championship or anything like that. Um, I, I believe that they tend to have him fight on, uh, the native American reservations where drug testing tends to be a little <laughs> bit more lax. That's part of the reason that they do that. Um, but he, he is, just a, a fa it's a fascinating story and just another one of veterans who go on to they're veterans in just about every walk of life. And yep. of course, that's what we talk about here at ConnectingVets.com. And if you go on to the website, our, our latest stories on there are pretty good, pretty fascinating. You know what I just learned? What's that? Talk about veterans in every walk of life. Of course, we had Dan Crenshaw, former Navy SEAL on yesterday. He's running for Congress down in your neck of the woods. 
Is that your actual district? Did we figure mm-hmm. out Harris County? There you go. So you actually uh, are one of the. Uh, are you still a resident of there? No, I'm in Virginia now. There you go. I so had to change to get my uh, well certain licenses. Can't vote for him anymore. He's not going to be the only seal if he wins this seat, and he's got a, a primary coming up. I think it is in March. He's not going to be the only seal in politics. Obviously, we've we've heard of a couple others getting involved. Did you have any idea though that the governor of Missouri is a former Navy SEAL? I had no clue. Yeah, his name is Eric Greitens, and apparently he was a SEAL and is now 43 years old and the governor of Missouri. And yeah, I mean, every walk of life. There are only 50 people in the United States currently serving as governors. One of them is a a former Navy SEAL, which I think, not even think, it definitely makes him part of an even more select group than the SEAL program. Oh, yeah. Only 50 people in the nation, one person per state gets elected to that governorship. And, you know, if they serve four years, like most of them do, let's say you, uh, you live 80 years. Let's say that's about a, that's a good average, I yeah. think, now. Probably a little bit above average. There's only 20 governors in your lifetime for every state. So, you know, it's pretty interesting to see that he went on and did that. So go to ConnectingVets.com. You can see a whole bunch of stories. And we'll have one on Dan Crenshaw coming up on the site later today. Taking a look around at the news in the service, it is being reported by the Associated Press that Charles Jenkins has died. Now, do you know who Charles Jenkins is? Any relation to Leroy? No relation to Leroy Jenkins or Charles Scooter, Charles Jenkins, the former Hofstra University basketball player, as I sit here wearing my Hofstra polo shirt. Charles Jenkins deserted from the United States Army along that parallel that we got there on the Korean Peninsula. Uh-oh. Yeah. So he defected to North Korea and lived there for decades. I mean, he was there. He he defected, I think, in the 60s, it was, I want to say, the 1960s, and only recently left North Korea because of, I think it was health issues for his wife, who was from Japan. Okay, he disappeared in January 1965 while on patrol. Um, so he deserts to North Korea and ends up living there, being used as a propaganda tool. He acted in some North Korean films. There were he and like two or three other defectors who basically became part of the, I don't want to call it Hollywood, but North Korea's version of Hollywood, where they would play the evil Americans in the movies. And that's pretty much what they did. And then they'd be trotted out in front of the press to talk about how, uh, how horrible, uh, you know, the United States was and all that stuff. So not only did he defect, but then he went on to assist the North Korean government in trying to make the United States look bad. So his wife, her name was Hitomi Soga. She's kidnapped in 1978 by the North Koreans. They used to raid Japan and kidnap people and bring them back. People that they thought would be useful to them in some way or just attractive women. And one of them that they kidnapped was Hitomi Soga. She was kidnapped in 1978. So he'd already been in in North Korea for 13 years at that point. Um, And they ended up getting married, had a couple of kids. And his wife uh, was allowed by the North Korean government to visit Japan in 2002. Uh, She ended up staying. She went back home to visit and said, I'm not going back there. (laughs) The North Korean government, uh, in one of their fairly rare uh, shows of good faith of some sort, allowed Jenkins and the daughters in 2004 to move to Japan. Charles Jenkins was technically still uh, a deserter. He yes. was absent without leave, to say the least, for 
we're talking what 40 years at this point 39 years by the time he gets to japan so uh he went to court martial had to put on a uniform and everything and his i mean this was 13 years ago so he was in his uh 60s i believe because he just died at 77 this was 13 years ago so he would have been 64 years old it had been four decades since he served had to put on the uniform uh went to court martial during the trial, he said, basically, I defected because I thought they were going to send me to Vietnam. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. Uh, you know, I don't know if he, made, if he made the right choice in choosing where he did want to go. Uh, he pled guilty to desertion and aiding the enemy, was dishonorably discharged and sentenced to 25 days in a U.S. military jail in Japan. 25 days more than Bo Bergdahl. Yep. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course I am. Um, so, you know, he uh, ended up staying in japan did not uh really have any interest in coming back to the united states probably because he would have been an absolute pariah when he got back here um they stayed in his wife's hometown uh, up in northern japan and just yesterday i believe it was yesterday at least in the last few days uh, he was found unresponsive outside of their home and pronounced dead 77 years old so you know an interesting story and you wonder uh, he talked about it. He wrote a book, so you don't really have to wonder. But with some of them, some of them stay over there. There's one guy, James Droz, Drozniak, Drozniak, something like that, stayed there and said he was happy to be there the whole time. And his kids are part of like the North Korean military and government. They, they, they are big time North Korea supporters. And you look at them, they don't look like the average North Korean because nope. they're, you know, their mother, I believe, was kidnapped from Romania. Their father was from the United States. So they look. They look like Europeans, yeah. but they're in North Korean military uniforms and speaking Korean better than they speak English. It's it's a, a fascinating story, and North Korea remains a place that fascinates me, not not in a good way, yeah. not like, oh boy, I'd in like a to horrified way, live in North Korea in a horrifying and fascinating way just because we don't know a whole lot about what's going on inside there. We know it's not good. Every time we find out something, every time someone smuggles a camera in and gets some footage out, is horrifying. It is an absolutely horrifying place with uh, basically a few Potemkin villages scattered throughout the country. Those are the places that are set up to look good for outsiders. And then when you get anywhere outside of that area, it's not good. Pyongyang is, is their shining jewel. And even there, like there's no electricity in many of the buildings at night. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating place. And, and he has talked about, you know, the decision to go over there. And I think Jenkins was a little bit, more open about not being very happy with where he ended up and what he ended up doing. And I think part of the reason that he said for that was that other guy that, Oh man, now I want to see what the guy's name was. The defector who went to North Korea. Um, uh, James Drosnack. He died a few years ago. Uh, North Korea defector. I got to type this in now. So the guy, this, this James Dresnock. There you go. James Dresnock, I believe was the name. Yeah. James Joseph Dresnock who also defected uh, in, it was around the same time, Dresnock was apparently a big bully and was was not nice to Mr. <laughs> Jenkins, who was kind of a uh, kind of a, a small little uh, weaselly guy, I guess you yeah. could say, whereas Dresnock was like the big kind of aggressive uh, guy who had gone to, I think he'd gone to court-martial for, for something or was facing a court-martial, and that's why he defected. He's like, well, I'm going to go to court-martial for, uh, yeah, here you go, forging signatures on paperwork. Instead of uh, facing the music for forging signatures, he decided he was going to leave to North Korea. Um, and part of the reason that Jenkins had such a, 
rough time over there was because Dresnok was kind of the leader of the the four big American defectors. Dresnok, uh, there's another guy named uh, Larry Abshire and Jerry Parrish. But, I mean, you lived in Korea, Jake. Could you ever in any way think of anything that would make you run across that DMZ and, and stay in North Korea short of like a zombie apocalypse breaking down? Breaking Even down then, I don't Korea. think I'd go. Because it's <laughs> when you go to the parallel and you look – across the across the river and across the what's the minefield and everything you can see a village where in the distance you can see people walking but based on our intelligence there's literally nothing going on there they like pretty much order people to walk around and pretend like they're happy and busy and they're not and you can see the towers that they use to block incoming radio signals yeah and it's it's disturbing Oh, I, yeah. I there was no, I would never go there for any reason just because even like if I went as a journalist now with my military background I'd be captured I'd be tortured and it's oh yeah it's disturbing place I would there's nothing in the world you could make me do that make me go over there yeah I mean it's 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 a fascinating place for all the wrong reasons and then you have um you know a book a book by uh, Jenkins called the reluctant communist where he said. That this Dresnok guy, who again was kind of the uh, the leader of the group of the four, after they all ended up there, they didn't all defect at the same time. They defected separately, but uh, said that uh, Dresnok would actually betray the Americans and like tell the North Korean secrets about them. Uh, Jenkins says he was beaten up on the orders of Korean handlers by Dresnok dozens of times. Uh, Dresnok said none of that happened, but when you when this is someone who says. Uh, that during the North Korean famine of the 90s, he was always given his food ration by the government. And he came out and made a public statement that, of course, went worldwide because it was propaganda. Why do they let their own people starve to death to feed an American? The great leader has given us a special solicitude. The government is going to take care of me until my dying day. You know why, James? And he died uh, November 2016. So, yeah, good good riddance. Yeah. He said, uh, he, he said, why would they take care of me? Why? Because it would look pretty bad if an American that defected to them died of malnutrition like the hundreds of thousands of North Koreans who did. You scumbag. So yeah. shut up. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's really... Oh boy, man. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And, uh, Jenkins at least seems to have regretted some of what he did. And I think the other two, uh, did for the most part as well. That Dresnok guy though, man, he just stuck with it. He was like, yeah, he North loved Korean it over the there. Day. Oh, he did. Cause it's a place where bullies are, are essentially in command. They're in control. That's how you get success in North Korea. Bullies and backstabbers. I mean, even within their own government, We've seen the reports and you can doubt them if you want, but we know that some of these have happened where, you know, you'll, you'll turn in someone to the government because it'll benefit you. Like, let's say we were doing this show in North Korea and it was called like, you know, connecting dear leader.com or whatever. <laughs> if we're doing this show in North Korea and Jake is the producer and Jake's like, you know, I wouldn't mind hosting that show. And then he tells the North Korean government, well, you know, that Eric Dame guy. He was saying things good about America. He was. He said America was pretty awesome. He's just, he's look at him. He's probably wearing American flag underpants. Next thing you know, I'd be hauled out into like a soccer stadium and shot with anti-aircraft weapons or set on fire using a flamethrower. Actual methods that they've used to kill people there. Uh, so Dresnok thrived in that situation. Um, he's an ugly dude, too, when you look up James Dresnok. Look at that picture and you're just like, ugh, really? Ugh. 
and, and a nasty, just a nasty, unpleasant person. I'm not sure, but I think he may have been a Texan. And I say that because I've seen several interviews with him. I've studied quite a bit of, uh, of about North Korea. No, he wasn't a Texan. He was apparently born in Norfolk, Virginia. Mm, interesting. Uh, it just had a very Southern drawl that you think of more of like the, the Southern the States, more Southern States, but he, uh, you know, just an ugly dude and ended up, uh, you know, they, they kidnapped a woman for him, gave her to him. He essentially had his own personal slave. I mean, the guy liked it over there. That's the kind of sociopath that he was, um, again. So there, there, I don't believe any of those are, I think this is the last of those four to die. I think I, I know, I know Abshire is, is dead. Yeah. He died in the eighties, Larry Abshire. And then as we look at Jerry Parrish, he died in 1998. So yeah, all of the four that went over there, um, and that should tell you something. How many people do we have uh, in North Korea at any given point in time? Do you have any idea? In North Korea? In South Korea. South Korea? Uh, a couple thousand. Uh, that's like the best I can give you. Sorry. Yeah, there's going to be. Well, that's it's all right. There's going to be some some number of thousands of Americans there. People constantly rotating in and out. Uh, four have defected over to North Korea. So <laughs> We uh, know what we should do. We should send them Spencer Rapone. Oh, hey, he could go live over there. Yeah, yeah see how I mean, much he, he loves communism then. Well, you know, like many people who support communism, I think old Spence would probably be, oh, well, that's not real communism. Oh, yeah? Where is the real communism? Yeah. <laughs> Where is the communism that will thrive, as you say, and take over the United States? We haven't found out anything that happened to him. And actually, you know, because we can, we can sometimes check out, like, what's bringing people to our website – one of the things that keeps bringing people to ConnectingVets.com is the story of Spencer Opone. Of course, we broke uh, the news that he was released for standards from the Ranger Battalions. I think we should try to find out what the heck happened with him, if anything. That'd be, that, that'd be a great story. That'd be a big story. And there hasn't been anything on it in months. I mean, what was that, like September, October that we were talking about? October, him? yeah. October. So. We graduated from West Point. Yeah, yeah. No, he graduated from West Point. He was already at 10th Mountain Division. He graduated oh, from West right. Point in like May or something like that. Right. So was just, he posted the, the pictures were yeah, found the, in October. The pictures were like reposted and, and then he was posting his communist Reddit groups and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think we should uh, we should see like if there's any, I know what they're going to tell us, but I'm going to reach out maybe and see anyway. It's just one of those things that I think we should try to find out about. Um, other things that we're looking at, of course, uh, the transgender ban uh, yeah, people I've serving heard about in the this. military. So the president tweeted out that we're not going to let transgender people serve in the military. Well, a federal judge ruled yesterday that transgender individuals can begin enlisting in the military on January 1st, denying a request by the Trump administration for a delay. Uh, this is a district court judge. I don't know which district. It doesn't say. Let's see if we can look her up and see uh, where Judge Colleen Kohler-Catelli is. Um, well, I certain mean, districts are a lot more likely to. Right. There's the, there's a one district court in like California, that, like the one that, that challenged like four times the travel ban and stuff like that. She is district judge of the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. So she is a local person uh, hmm. to Washington, D.C. Anyway, so this is not, what is it? Is it the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals? I, I think. think. The, well, the one that's like super liberal and always, you know, has been like with the, uh, the, um, the travel ban that was put in place, people called a Muslim ban, despite the fact that it it's, didn't ban all Muslims from entering yeah. the country. It was specific countries that we know there are uh, elements that want to get into our country from. Anyway, uh, that court of appeals denied it, said it was unconstitutional. And now the Supreme Court has said, 
No, it, it absolutely is. We do have the ability to do this and, and the Supreme court actually, I think it was like seven to two or something like that in the Supreme court, only two people dissented, which means uh, some of the more liberal justices on the Supreme court had to agree with it because it's, yeah. it's the law, it's legal, you know, they make their decisions. Um, yeah. So interesting stuff. And very sad news coming out of Afghanistan as a U.S. service member died yesterday as a result of injuries sustained during a vehicle incident in Nangarhar province, Afghanistan. Uh, this is U.S. forces Afghanistan announcing it in a statement. Two other service members were injured receiving medical treatment. They were not in contact with enemy forces at the time. According to the statement, Army General John Nicholson says, we are deeply saddened by the loss of one of our own. Her deepest sympathies and prayers are with the families and friends of our fallen and injured comrades. Uh, the number of total U.S. forces killed this year in Afghanistan, 14. You can look at that uh, as saying, well, that's good compared to where things were just a couple of years ago. Uh, it, it, it's it's an improvement, certainly, over when there were hundreds being killed in Afghanistan every year. Um, 14 is still 14 people with 14 Too many. families and 14 groups of friends and each one of them could have been yeah. any one of us. So, you and know. It's, and it's somehow worse that it was an accident and it wasn't like if he, if he died in combat, that's this horrible. It is to be expected, but for an accident like that, it's tragic. Yeah. You know, just in a vehicle and something happened with that vehicle. Did somebody make a mistake? Was somebody messing around? I mean, these are the things we don't know. The thing that we do know, one of our brothers in arms is now no longer with us. So our thoughts go out to his family and friends. Morning briefing here. Hill Vets coming up right after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Derek Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer, and ConnectingVets.com is your website. And we mean that. Created by veterans for veterans and focusing on the veteran experience, the veteran lifestyle, the veteran news. There's so much great content on ConnectingVets.com. You could really spend days going through all of it because at this point, we've been here for like, oh, I don't know, six months now. And six months of us working tirelessly every day. If you look through our top stories on the site, Wreaths Across America, they're doing their big push this weekend. You can find out how to take part in that or how to help out. It's also a good one about soldier and spouse and their traveling house. New book that you might want to check out. The, quote, forever war in Syria. Five VA mistakes that veterans can appeal. California National Guard activated to fight wildfires and oh so much more. And of course, you want to follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. The Big Four, we are the big there. And you want to follow us to be kept up to date on the latest and greatest been telling you this video that we did with Sarah Maples last Friday. It's uh, I don't know if it's our number one video yet, but it's rapidly approaching it as more and more people are learning about the TRICARE changes coming on January 1st. It's a big deal. And if you don't know the details and you're a TRICARE recipient, you need to check out that video. And we are going to have a TRICARE representative. One of the big wigs over at TRICARE is going to be on the show so we can talk more in depth and in detail about those changes and what you need to know right here on The Morning Briefing. That's coming next week. But right now, we are joined in guest, joined in guest, 
reset. Right now, we're joined in studio by a special guest, someone we've been talking to for a while, trying to get him to come here onto the morning briefing, but he's from out of town. He wanted to do it in studio, and his plans kept getting changed. Well, now he's here, and he is Air Force veteran Brian Nicewander. Brian, how are you today? Fantastic, Eric. Thanks, and thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for waiting, too. (laughs) It's absolutely a pleasure to have you here. And Brian, along with being an Air Force veteran, is here to talk to us about MilitaryTransition.org. And if you're already looking for the website, it's Military-Transition.org. That dash is important. They have one of those web squatters on the MilitaryTransition.org website who had it. Uh, So you definitely want to throw that dash in there. But Brian, before we talk about MilitaryTransition.org, let's talk about your background and your service. As I mentioned, you served in the United States Air Force, but give us a little bit more of the detail. Where are you from? When did you serve? What did you do? You bet, Eric. Thanks. So uh, my Air Force career was a total of just about 27 years. That's the active duty and reserve time. Uh, I was actually uh, raised in a little city, Northwest Ohio. So I joined the Air Force from Finley, Ohio. Uh, uh, So headed out to the Air Force Academy. uh, And then I started my active duty career in 1990. Six years on active duty as an intel officer. Had three major assignments, actually two major assignments. Uh, The third was my reserve career. Uh, first assignment was up at Elmendorf Air Force Base in uh, the uh, the Great White North of Alaska, mm-hmm. a classic Cold War site. Uh, <laughs> we actually lived on Fort Richardson for a while, and I worked with the Navy. So back then, I uh, didn't really have as many joint tours, but that was our quasi-joint tour. Right. Second tour after that was uh, we went to uh, Offutt Air Force Base, and I was in the airborne world uh, working with the RC-135 community. Uh, great assignment, just like my first. Uh, but at the six-year point, I thought it was time to uh, try something different, and I want to take the uh, skills and experience that I had and take those out into industry. So in 1996, uh, 21 years ago, transitioned out into corporate America. For the past 21 years, I have been a, a manager in the public and the private sector and continue on as a reservist. So 21 years as a reserve intelligence officer as well. It's been fantastic. Enjoyed every single minute of it and uh, have worked with folks over the past 21 years in that transition space as well. And so I've learned a lot and now trying to apply that to our service members as they make their transition out of uniform and into the uh, civilian world. It's funny. You're an Air Force intelligence officer and you're the second one in the last three shows to be on the show. Sarah Maples from the VFW, their National Security and Foreign Affairs Director, who I mentioned is in that video that we have on Connecting Vets uh, Facebook page, also an Air Force intelligence officer. Absolutely. I caught that show and she's (laughs) doing fantastic things. So uh, all of our veterans are doing fantastic things, but I'm just honored to be uh, one of the Air Force Intel veterans. So when we talk about, of course, you're continuing to serve in the reserves, but when we talk about your transition, now you're an academy grad, went to the Air Force Academy, six years as an intelligence officer, which is a demanding field that takes, well, a little bit of intelligence, actually, to be an intelligence officer. I think most people assume academy graduate, intel officer, that whole track that you were on, you're going to get out and it's going to be seamless. You're going to get out and things are just going to go smoothly for you when you transition out of the Air Force. Is that what actually happened? Tell us a little bit about your transition. Eric, I would say my transition was somewhat of an average transition. And I'll talk about some groups that actually go through the transition space. Uh, Mine was average. Uh, So I started early. I started the preparation early. Uh, I actually uh, used a corporate recruiter. So that helped and they helped bring some structure to my transition plan. And then I got on with a great organization. I uh, started off with a organization doing uh, market research, uh, big consumer brands in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, and it applied the skills that I had as an Intel officer, the ability to analyze things, the ability to take information and put it into context. And that's what you do as an Intel officer. So I did that same thing doing market research uh, to help uh, shape decision quality information on billion dollar brands. 
Uh, so my transition was somewhat of the average transition because I started early. I learned, uh, but there were certainly some hurdles uh, along the way. Uh, I missed taking off the year. I, I missed wearing the uniform. Uh, but overall, mine was was average. I'll share more about that as we go. But I learned a lot. And I also then recruited veterans to come out into industry. And so I work with all branches, all ranks. And so I saw how their transition process worked. Uh, in 1996, uh, there was no transition assistance program. It was basically just a DD Form 214, right. uh, a handshake, and they walk you to the door. So back then, you had to do a lot more on your own. I was thankful that I had some coaches that helped me, uh, and so I apply those insights into what we're doing today at militarytransition.org. And we're joined by Brian Nicewander, who is an Air Force veteran and doing good things over at military-transition.org. That dash is important. Put it in straight as militarytransition.org. It takes you to a whole nother website. So throw that dash on in there and you'll be good to go. But Brian, tell us, where did militarytransition.org come from? Where did the idea for it come from and when did it actually begin? Absolutely, Eric. So I talked about uh, my first job was doing market research, uh, consumer good industry, working with veterans, uh, collecting information, analyzing that and helping make business decisions. Uh, and so there's where the idea really came up. So why can't we use that same approach to collect information from our veterans that can help service members and their families with the most important uh, post-military mission they have, and that's the mission of transition. So I started actually building some questions using those skills that I learned doing market research, business intelligence, started building the questions, and uh, uh, about two and a half years ago, I actually put it online and started actually going active and collecting data. I bet it really started 20 years ago, and I've amassed those uh, questions and the insights, and I've worked with enough veterans to really understand a lot of them ask the same type of questions when they think about their future out of uniform. They ask, what does somebody with my education, skills, experience do in the civilian world? Right. Do they like it? Are they happy? What are the lessons that they've learned that I can use in my transition, both good and bad? There are some issues with transition. There are transition ambushes that happen, and it's nice to know that those ambushes are out there uh, so that uh, we can avoid those. So it's sharing the, uh, the good, bad, the ugly uh, to help inform those transitions. I call it, you know, transition intelligence, really. Uh, the same mindset that we use in the military of having intelligence before we conduct an operation or in business, business intelligence before we make decisions. That same rigor and approach applied to the transition space. And that's what we're doing. And important stuff. I mean, because the, the, the transition happens for everyone. Who serves? It's one of those things, you know, there, there are certain things in life that uh, are guaranteed to occur to everybody. Death, taxes, and when it comes to veterans, leaving the service. Absolutely. Of course, Absolutely. you know, everybody who serves, that time, uh, you know, as long as you make it through alive, that time is going to come. And there are some people that are prepared. There are some people that are not prepared. And you have a lot of the data on that, I understand. You've been doing a lot of research into this and trying to figure it out. So what have you found out about you know, who's ready for transition, who does the best, what should people do? I mean, tell us some of the things that you found out through your research. Absolutely. So, Eric, actually, there are five major highlights that I'd like to share today, and then also five recommendations based on the research that we've done so far. So I'll start with the highlights from the research. Uh, and the first is the transition is difficult, you know, uh, but there are ways that you can reduce that difficulty and confusion. So when you talk to veterans, what you hear is that they're transitioning into the unknown. Yeah. A lot of them will talk about the unknown. So I think that there are actually three major groups of service members that transition into uh, the, you know, the, uh, the civilian workforce. Uh, the first is those that are entering the complete unknown. And these are folks that are completely unprepared or highly unprepared to enter the complete unknown. Um, this is about 25% of our veterans 
Uh, and this is the place that you don't want to be. It's characterized by significant periods of unemployment, mm-hmm. extremely high levels of stress. Uh, and then when you get a job, you might have to hop several times. And it's uh, a systemic issue with this group. So that's the group you don't want to be in. Uh, the next group aren't really entering the complete unknown. They're entering the somewhat unknown. And so that somewhat is largely dependent upon amount of preparation that they have done. So if they've done a lot of preparation, it's still the unknown, but it's yeah. not as unknown. Uh, and this is where most of the veterans are at. This is where I was at. And this is about half of our veterans. Yep. And the last group are the folks that aren't entering the unknown. They're entering the unfamiliar. These are folks that have skills and experience that translate really well into the civilian workforce. Things like medical professionals that uh, leave the uniform and uh, start a civilian practice or go into a civilian practice the next day. Mm-hmm. Or folks that uh, walk out of uniform and the military converts their position into a civilian role and they come back very quickly. Or they get on with a contractor uh, that's uh, supporting the DOD. And so they understand the culture. They understand the mission. It's kind of like a PCS uh, without a uniform. Uh, so they're learning what to wear and uh, what their benefits uh, entail. And then you have folks like pilots that, that, that can get out and go fly for an airline. So that's the, the group that enters the unfamiliar. And that's about a quarter of the, uh, uh, the veterans as well. So that's the first piece. The transition is difficult and there are ways. And I'll talk about that in a second with our five recommendations of how you really want to be in that somewhat unknown. You want to minimize that level of unknown. Second piece is that uh, education and awareness are critical uh, because a lot of our veterans keep making the same mistakes as those that have gone before them. Oh, yeah. Um, so we study history so we can learn from it and, uh, and not make the same mistakes uh, that we've done in the past. And so that's what we're doing at militarytransition.org. Uh, and so we're learning from those that have been successful, the ones that have been successful and quickly successful. What did they do different and how can we reapply that? For those that were successful but it took a significant period of time, what can we learn? How can we apply it? I truly believe that the, the transition will take you the same amount of time whether you start while you're wearing a uniform or you invest that time after you've gotten out and potentially are, are unemployed. unemployed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, what can we learn from them? And then the folks that have the enduring challenges. You know, those different groups that you talked about, it's very interesting to hear that. And I think one of the the concerns that a lot of people have is related to something that you mentioned, actually, and that is, does my job translate to the civilian world? What Absolutely. do I do? You know, if you are a Navy guy myself, bosun's mate in the United States Navy, where your job is making sure the ship is ready to go, essentially, that the, the anchors are taken care of, everything is cleaned off, chains are taken care of. What does that mean in the civilian world? How big of a concern do you think that is or should it be to veterans? And what can they do to try and figure out you know, where their place is and how that experience they picked up, whether they did four years or 24, where it might actually uh, work out for them? Eric, I like to tell folks that the past doesn't necessarily define your future, both in terms of rank and in terms of the position or duties that you had. So, you know, I've been a senior officer or a senior NCO, uh, and don't expect that that's going to translate immediately into a senior position. By the oh, same yeah. token, you might have been uh, a boat's mate, uh, or you might have been, uh, you know, uh, Army E5, uh, and don't think that you are limited in your opportunities in the civilian world because of that. Also, from a position standpoint, some veterans want to do things that are different from what they did in uniform. So the one thing that's consistent, uh, I tell folks that there are hard skills. So your doctors, your pilots have hard skills, but the military does a great job of teaching us all soft skills, things like leadership, communication skills, team building, problem solving, initiative, work ethic, uh, adaptability. These are the things that industry is really looking for. So it doesn't matter where you're at in the military. These are the skills that you need to work on. You need to be able to translate those 
so that an employer sees those as valuable in their enterprise. And that's really the key. That is one of the most important steps to reduce that level of unknown that I talked about earlier. So great mm -hmm. question. And it's really, it takes time. And that's the really the, the recommendations that I have and the things to help prepare people for that transition. We're talking to Brian Nicewander from militarytransition.org. That's military-transition.org. <clears throat> my goodness, I, my throat just locked up on me there. All this good information. It's, it's like my body's just trying to ask too many things at the same time, I guess. So we're talking to Brian about that transition process that every service member is going to go through, the preparedness, the lack of preparedness. You talked about a list of five things that you think are important for people to know as they get ready to transition, different things that they can do to increase their transition. Tell us about that list of five things, Brian. Awesome. Eric, here they are. So these are what veterans say are important to be successful in your transition. There are five of them, and I'll walk through. Okay. The first one is to start preparing early for your transition. Uh, so 62% of post-9-11 veterans surveyed indicate that their transition took more time than they expected. 62%, that's quite a few. So it's a systemic issue. You've got to start early. I tell folks to start two years before they transition, at least two years before they transition. Go to TAP. In fact, uh, the research says that if you attend TAP more than once, you are 57% more likely to indicate that it is extremely helpful or very helpful. So go at the two-year point, go more than once. Yep. Um, that helps you start building your plans and helps reduce that level of unknown, which is what it's all about. So that leads to number two, which I'm actually going to link number two, three, and four all together. Number two is to have a transition plan. Number three is to build your network or to network. And number four is to learn how to translate your skills. I talked about that briefly just a few minutes ago, but have a transition plan, period, dot. Start thinking about what's next after you take off the uniform because decisions you make in uniform will impact your marketability down the road. Right. Think about what you want to do. And really the start of having a plan is that you're going to develop a plan to have a plan. So start reading, start engaging and talking to people about what's out there, which really leads to the next point is networking, building your network. Networking is the most recommended aspect of a successful transition from the veterans that we have surveyed. 86% cite this as critical to your success when you get out. Uh, so again, that helps you reduce that level of unknown. Tools like LinkedIn are great. There are fantastic organizations like ACP, American Corporate Partners, Veterati. But you also have local organizations you can work with that are very helpful to help you understand what's next. Do what's called informational interviews. Buy somebody lunch. Take them out. Buy them a cup of coffee and ask them about what they do in industry. Yep. Talk to the people that were ahead of you, that you worked with in uniform, that have made the transition. And ask them for their honest and candid feedback. Uh, so then the fourth is learning to translate your skills, which is the most difficult of all the uh, the steps uh, that we're talking about here. It takes time and it takes effort to be able to do that. We talked earlier about the hard skills are really easy to translate. The soft skills are great. That's what industry is looking for. But you have to work to learn how to translate those. And then last, be patient. It's going to be turmoil. It's going to be difficult. Uh, don't uh, don't ditch your plan, stick with it. It's going to evolve and it's going to change, but stay with that plan and it'll take you to success. So there's the five things that, uh, when you survey thousands of veterans, that's what they'll tell you is, uh, is most important in that process. You know, it's interesting, Brian, when we talk to veterans, uh, who are high speed in so many ways, we're talking to on this program, we talk to everybody from, as I said, bosun's mates to, uh, mechanics, to engineers, to special operators, your seals, your green berets, it's interesting to note 
that while in service, we all tend to have plans on how we're going to attack our career in the military. Maybe not if you're at the very beginning of your career, but if you serve anywhere past one enlistment, you're going to have a plan. And even on a day-to-day level, even if you are you know, seaman recruit or a buck private or whatever, you're going to have a plan on how you attack that day. You're going to work. You, you and your team are going to have a plan when it comes to getting out that plan often isn't in place and we don't think about it. And I was guilty of that. I planned a ton during my, my career, especially the last you know seven years when I was in leadership positions, I planned every day. But then when it came time to get out, I was like, eh, I'll figure it out, I guess, you know, Eric, there are a lot that have that same approach. And so I tell folks, as you go through those milestones in your career, when you get promoted uh, is a, is a perfect opportunity. But when you think about your military career, think about what's next. Um, so again, I enjoyed my time in uniform. It was fantastic. Almost 27 years. Um, I wish I would have started earlier. Uh, I, I did because I helped the help of a, a recruiter and a coach to be able to do that, but I should have started way before that. I tell folks two years at minimum, but when you're doing those plans for your military career, think about what's next, have mentors, both in uniform and out of uniform. That's completely allowed. Uh, that is extremely powerful. Having those mentors, building your network in and out of uniform, a uh, great way to start. You know, we we also talked about the how things have changed since when you got out, when you transitioned from active duty to the reserves and the civilian life. Um, you know, I had to go through tap class while I was in the transition assistance program. I went through it in Guam. That's where I where I kind of finished up my career and. I honestly looked at tap class and especially after going for the first day and seeing what the schedule was and what was on, on tap in tap. Ah, that's ironic. <laughs> I saw it as an opportunity to wear civilian clothes and not yeah. go, go to work for a couple weeks. There didn't always seem to be things that were going to be of interest or of value to me in the tap class. A lot of it seemed aimed at trying to push me towards a government service job or getting a job with the government someplace. And that wasn't at all what I was interested in doing at that time. And, and still to this day, how do you think based on the, the research that you've done, the studies that military transition.org has done, how do you think the military is doing in preparing people? How much of it do you think is on the service members, not taking advantage of what the uh, military is offering and how much of it is the military, perhaps not offering everything that they could to our service members who are getting ready to transition. Eric, my frame of reference is when I transitioned back in 1996, 20 years ago, there was no such thing as tap again, right. form 214 handshake and walk you to the door. Uh, so the very fact that we have transition programs, I think is a monumental step forward. And we have improved these over the past several years. There's still room to go. I will say that there is room to go, but I am very thankful that that program even exists today. Um, but it is a one size fits all solution. So in the same class, you're going to have maybe an O5 and, and an E5, and they have different backgrounds, different education skills and experience. They also have long-term goals that are vastly different or can be vastly different. And so it starts as a one size fits all solution, but it's really upon the member to then go the next step, to start building their plans to start thinking about what's next. Um, it's your transition. It's not the military's transition. It's yours. And so you need to help shape it. And again, it goes back to those five recommendations of things to do. So start it early. Some of the feedback that I have about TAP, again, I'm a huge fan that we even have it, but it's a ton of information that's jam-packed into one week. 
And so again, uh, studies show that if you go through it twice, you're much more likely to retain that information that's kind of a fire hose at you. Um, And the second piece is um, that uh, some wait to the absolute last minute. So then they try to put together a plan, but they really have no ability to uh, start networking, start uh, learning how to translate their skills uh, some are so aren't able to technically focus on what's happening in the TAP program as well. So there's some of the criticisms, but it's a great step forward. It's a one size fits all solution, but the members actually need to build upon that and start following the recommendations that I just shared and others as well. You got to take an active part in your uh, transition. Speaking to Brian Nicewander from military-transition.org, and we're talking about the, the really the great work that he's been doing with the site to get information out there. And you've, you've said a couple of times now, one size fits all, and, and some of the programs being offered are one size fits all, but transitioning is not at all a one size fits all sort of situation. How do you hope militarytransition.org can assist not only those transitioning service members becoming veterans, but perhaps also the employers out there who are looking to perhaps hire veterans, but don't know exactly what they should be looking for within the veteran community? You bet. So, Eric, again, uh, one-size-fits-all approaches and solutions are everywhere, Uh, but really the transition itself is personal, and so you have to take personal responsibility And so that's the uniqueness in our platform is that it allows you to get tailored insights to the key questions that everybody asks. So if you are a uh, a petty officer, first class, uh, male 26, associate's degree, um, and you are a radar operator and you want to live on the West Coast, uh, the responses to those questions, you want them to fit your profile versus Army 05, captain, bachelor's degree, infantry uh, that wants to live in the Midwest versus a lieutenant colonel, female Air Force that wants to live and do acquisition in uh, on the East Coast. So our solution allows you to go in. You put in uh, the responses to eight different filters, branch, rank, years of service, your specialty, MOS, AFSC, um, age, gender, and it gives responses. There are 12 pages worth of data on the website, and the 13th page then shows you who's in the data set itself. Mm. Uh, so you've got to take personal responsibility for your transition. The one-size-fits-all solutions are everywhere, uh, and so that's why we've got the recommendations of uh, things that you can do to help reduce that level of unknown. You mentioned also about uh, companies as they recruit veterans, and that's a huge talent pool, and so I encourage organizations to be able to do that. Uh, my experience, my research indicates that there are a couple things that indicate the organizations that are most successful in transitioning veterans and bringing them on board. The first one is those that realize that the uh, the military community is just that. It's a community. And so when they go out with uh, more of a community approach and they have families involved, they tend to be more successful. The second one is those organizations that use veterans in their organization to help in that uh, transition and recruiting process so that they speak the same language as that veteran. So you enter uh, less of an unknown space, if you will. Uh, And then the third is those that actually have retention programs uh, and they have, you know, uh, programs designed to help with that transition, kind of like having a sponsor when you transition or when you PCS in in uniform. Uh, They also coach and train supervisors that don't have military backgrounds so they understand the military talent that's coming into their organization. So that's what I've seen to be most successful on the company side. All important things and all important work being done by Brian Nicewander over at MilitaryTransition.org. You can find that website, again, Military-Transition.org. You can also find them on Twitter where they're at MilTransurvey. They've also got social media links right on the website. Go check it out. Really valuable information. Thank you so much to Brian and all our guests today. And thank you for listening to The Morning Briefing. We'll see you tomorrow. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.